Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Leading figures from the social sciences will discuss whether the theory of natural selection has anything to offer present-day studies of culture and society. The seminar is organised by the University of Bath and the Academy of Learned Societies for the Social Sciences as part of the ESRC Festival of Social Science. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm Linus Rekwa, I'm the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Bath and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here today to this event which is forming part of the ESRC um, Festival Week that is organised by the Academy of Social Sciences. I'm particularly pleased to be able to do that as an academician myself. Uh, I really do feel that the Academy should be organising many more events like this to proselytise and to encourage debate in social sciences. I'm absolutely convinced that this is the right venue for those sort of debates. So any time it wants to come to the University of Bath, it's going to be very, very welcome as you all are today. Um, I won't carry on talking. I'm just really pleased to have you here and to have this sort of debate in our university. I'll pass you on to Ian Goff, who's been the organiser of today's event. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> well, why a seminar on evolution and the social sciences? Uh, there's a lot of work now uh, on the genetic evolution of Homo sapiens and the implications of this for understanding human behaviour. Evolutionary psychology is a nature-nurture debate. Um, there's research, debate and controversy in this area, a lot of it. But there's still relatively little on applying the evolutionary framework, and especially Darwinian theory, to the evolution of social practices, uh, social institutions, cultural and economic systems and so forth. <coughs> and so that's the main topic for, for today. Um, the idea developed in conversation with, with Sam Bowles at the Santa Fe Institute, um, with, which has its own programs on co-evolution of preferences and institutions, the evolutionary dynamics of class structures, and so on. Unfortunately, Sam can't be here today, <coughs> but he sends his best wishes for the meeting. Um, the point uh, that he emphasises, and others, is that this sort of approach requires cross-disciplinary research. In fact, he now uh, uses the term non-disciplinary research, non-disciplinary research. And that ties in with the academies. Uh, to promote interdisciplinary research across the social sciences. Uh, so, hence today's seminar. And it's a real pleasure to welcome four eminent social scientists to, uh, to develop and debate <coughs> these issues. Um, they are um, Gary Runciman, Fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, recent past president of the British Academy, author of many books from Relative Deprivation and Social Justice, which is, dates back to 1966, that's 40-odd years ago, to a treatise on social theory, which came out in three volumes between 1983 and 1997. And the second volume of that is especially relevant. It proposes a reformulation of evolutionary sociology, drawing on many historical and empirical studies. <clears throat> and that is still, I think, his current research priority. Um, then there's Ruth Mace, Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at University College London, um, who's the investig an investigator at the Centre for the Evolution of Cultural Diversity. Um, her research is on the evolution of cultural traits. Her most recent book is The Evolution of Cultural Diversity, a Phylogenetic <coughs> Approach, which was published two years ago. Um, then there's Jeff uh, Hodgson, Research Professor in Business Science at the University of Hertfordshire. He's an economist with a long-time interest in evolutionary thinking, <clears throat> and his books spread um, range from Economics and Evolution in 1993 
to Economics in the Shadow of Darwin and Marx, published last year. And then lastly, at the end of the table, Mike Rustin, who is Professor of Sociology at the University of East London and visiting professor at the Tavistock Institute. Um, Mike is a bit of a polymath. He's written on biography, psychoanalysis, and some books that almost defy classification, like The Good Society and the Inner World. Um, he reviewed um, Simmons' various uh, book <coughs> uh, in the New Left Review, uh, which led to his engagement with some of these articles. So those are the speakers. The intention is um, to have, uh, well, I shall now pass on to the, the chair of this uh, debate, who is uh, Gary Wilson. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, well, the, the format that is proposed is that I will speak a few, a general introduction. Um, each speaker has been given 20 minutes, and the suggestion is that no questions immediately after each speaker. Uh, when they each have their 20 minutes, then for the remaining time there will be um, a general discussion. So I, I hope people who are panting to get, <laughs> to get at the speakers one by one, you can restrain yourselves until, until it will be open season uh, and you can have a go at all of us uh, uh, when, when, we, when we've each uh, spoken. So I'll speak first, uh, um, then um, Ruth, then Joe, and then Mike. Uh, um, uh, when I... Uh, when I got the, um, the details of the seminar, uh, I have to say my eyebrows were raised slightly um, but when I read that the seminar was going to take the form of a debate between eminent social scientists on whether evolutionary thinking has anything to offer to the study of society. Um, well, even people less committed, if we are, than the people on, on the platform, uh, to some form of neo-Darwinian approach to some branch of the human behavioral sciences would I think concede that like it or not uh, that, that is going on and has been going on for I would say at least 20 years a classic Kuhnian style paradigm shift across the whole range of the human behavioral sciences all the way from uh, uh, psychology to linguistics to economics to archaeology as we shall no doubt hear more about, and including not least evolutionary game theory, in which people like Sam Bowles are, are world leaders, where there is an enormous uh, um, literature which ought to be much better known uh, to people working in any field uh, of the social sciences um, than, it, than it actually is. Uh, that's not claiming that, that uh, there's some wonderful magic uh, key to all the mysteries that the problem will be solved, but simply I'd, I'd like to kick off. Um, by, by saying that I have been struck uh, for a period of about uh, uh, 20 years now um, at just the extent to which a neo-Darwinian approach, and if you say what, a, what I at least mean by that, um, I assume everybody here uh, knows that Darwin's original phrase of what he called descent with qualification, seems to me in the best way to, as it were, translate that into the language of 21st century social science is to say heritable variation and competitive selection. And if you want to say variation and selection of what, it seems to me that the best general approach to say uh, is that, that we, are talk we are all, from Sheridan's perspective, we are talking in one way or another um, about the heritable variation and the competitive selection of information which affects behavior in the phenotype. Now, my own subject, I'm a sociologist, is, I think, probably 
um, with, with one or two other uh, bastions of reaction on the academic scene. Uh, uh, the most unreconstructed in terms of this. I've often wondered why. Uh, I think it's for two reasons. Um, I think that the, the knee-jerk reaction of an awful lot of people, and people who themselves are doing very good work in their own um, chosen fields, either they think this is some kind of reversion to social Darwinism, which are now thoroughly outdated and, and uh, um, discredited and, and mistaken version of Darwin's original idea, or they think uh, that this is some insidious attempt in the name of uh, uh, sociobiology or possibly evolutionary ecology to reduce the explanation of human behavior in all its forms to some form of, of applied biology. Uh, another equally mistaken view that we're going to have on occasions you know, like this uh, come across it and I just don't know how much longer it's going to take uh, um, until the people whose initial reaction is that can be consigned by the history books to the category of what Kuhn himself in, in the classic book of 1962 called the diehards. And those of you who remember it, uh, that, that he said and, and, and then documents it in a number of areas um, of the long-established uh, natural sciences, uh, that, that a paradigm shift is really only complete uh, when the diehards, they actually have to die off and stop teaching <laughs> Uh, um, until a new generation of people grows up to whom that's already been consigned uh, to, the, to the history books. Um, so, uh, just by way of, again, uh, difficult to know, uh, we may all be in this difficulty, uh, how much to take for granted. And whether some of you, what I'm about to say, may think this is very obvious and you can come here uh, to hear that all over again. Um, some of you may think, good heavens, <laughs> uh, um, is that what it's all about? But I do think as an introduction to the discussion we're going to have, um, that it's important uh, uh, to make clear that there are really two, two aspects uh, um, to this which need to be distinguished. And one is the extent to which the theory of natural selection itself has turned out and is turning out in the course of ongoing research to explain a lot more about human behavior than certainly my generation of, of sociologists or, or anthropologists uh, would have believed uh, was likely or, or even possible. Um, and uh, that's in at least four uh, different areas. First of all, behavior genetics, which studies uh, within group differences. Uh, um, and as it has turned out, uh, it's the behavior geneticists who are uh, among the people who've driven the last nail into the coffin of precisely the old racist social Darwinism, which I was saying, some sociologists at least, think that this is this is all about. Uh, there are the evolutionary psychologists um, who start absolutely rightly from the recognition that the, uh, the human mind, i.e. brain, is as much a product of long years of natural selection as human intestines. Uh, um, and, uh, with the consequence that although there is enormous variety in what we all think, not everything is thinkable any more than every food is digestible despite the enormous range across cultures um, of the way in which people prepare and eat what they, uh, um, what, what they eat. Then there are the cognitive and developmental psychologists uh, whose concern is precisely the interaction between innate dispositions and the environment, going back indeed to the environment of the womb. Uh, um, and the, uh, the really interesting issues there are how the theory of natural selection can, can be integrated with embryology, the study of, of, of development of the individual organism, and then finally, there's the whole area of, of uh, um, clinical psychology, 
uh, and the remarkable discoveries which have been made and are being made uh, going back to conditions like Porphyria going into many years. Recently, some of you may have read very interesting findings about a syndrome called Tay-Sachs, uh, which may well have uh, uh, significant implications for the, the intellectual performance of different genetic human populations. Now, <clears throat> that's enough in itself that it should have changed the mindset of, of, the, of, of the reactionaries, if I can call them that uh, by now, in the behavioral sciences. But uh, somebody whose name I'd like to, to mention, uh, partly because I find that in this country, at least, in the United States, it would be different. Surprisingly few, few people have heard of it. It's an American psychologist. Can I actually just try, if I mention the name, an American psychologist called Donald T. Camp. How many, how many of you have actually heard that name? <coughs> yeah. Yes. Well, um, uh, um, he, he is a, a candidate um, for being uh, one of the first um, behavioral scientists who really recognized the implications of the theory of natural selection being only one special case of a more general evolutionary theory. Evolution, the Darwinian conception of heritable variation of selection, running in Campbell's view all the way from chemical evolution, which preceded uh, the existence of life, through natural selection into um, what he called socio-cultural evolution. Uh, now, I have um, a small axe of my own to grind, and I'll just mention it, and you can take it up in discussion uh, if you would like, uh, which is that not enough people appreciate that social and cultural evolution are different, uh, different things which go on at, at different levels. Um, and that what has to be distinguished, first of all, we are all, all, all human beings are subject to the evolutionary pressures of, of natural selection acting on us as organisms. The information is transmitted genetically through strings of DNA, construction of molecules, standard stuff. I mean, you can argue if you want um, about where is the explanation of why the world works the way Darwin said it is. You can answer that question if you like, like Archbishop Temple uh, uh, was the first person I entered to do it and, and said, uh, this is not a problem for us Christians because God in his wisdom, with his almighty mind, chose to design the world who works, who works that way. But of course, if God designed a world which works the way Darwin says it is, then those of us who try and, and take up that insight and explain how human individuals, groups, communities, societies, economies um, behave as they do, we have to find non-teleological explanations um, of, of how the world um, actually works. But if culture is, as I think uh, seems to be the most useful way to define it, uh, is in terms of information which is passed from mind to mind by imitation or learning, when you get to the level of social evolution, the world which, which I was you know, brought up to study, uh, where the debates were between functionalists and Marxists and, 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 uh, and structuralists, the world of class conflict and slavery, and, uh, um, that something quite different goes on because we as a species, unlike others, we, we behave as we do in, uh, by performing institutional roles in which what goes on inside our heads in terms of culture, what our beliefs and attitudes are, aren't actually uh, um, the way to explain how we behave. You only have to think of somebody, the proverbial anthropologist from Mars, who comes 
uh, and he notices that one of the things about our species is that uh, at any time uh, in the last 10,000 years uh, uh, across the globe, it's not difficult uh, to find young adult males um, killing each other in quite uh, uh, consistent and organized ways. And if the hypothetical anthropologist says, well, what's going on? Well, part of the answer is that you've got to look to uh, uh, natural selection to explain why it is that young adult males are more disposed to lethal violence anywhere. I mean, this is, this is a major finding, as far as I know, particularly on, on, on China. Uh, significantly more uh, um, than either uh, women or older men. But that doesn't explain very much until you get into seeing why some cultures are much more actually warlike than others. Some are much more peaceable. Information transmitted from mind to mind by imitation and learning makes a huge difference, uh, um, depending which part of the world you're looking at, as the hypothetical anthropologist, and when, uh, um, as to how much of this actually goes on. But you then, once you look at what actually goes on on fields of battle, what you see for an awful lot of human history is young adult males who have been conscripted into armies in which they behave as a result of sanctioned rules of behavior which they defy at their physical peril. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you're recruited uh, uh, into an army and sent out to fight somebody else. What? You've been taught about warfare inside your head. You have no option but to get out there and kill or be killed or suffer Know, certain institutional penalties. And that in itself, which of course is some classic sociology of warfare stuff, um, as to why you find armies and the, and the governments behind them organized in certain ways and, and behaving in, in certain ways. Um, now, the last point I think I'd like to make by, by way of introduction, and others, other speakers may of course disagree with some of what, of what I've said, um, is that, that the, the Darwinian approach is about population level effects. Uh, um, it is what happens at the level um, of the collectivity. Uh, and one of the things that, that I think it has done, it is actually relegated to the dustbin, the philosophy of social science courses that, that I was brought up with about individualism and holism and all that, all that, all that sort of thing. Uh, um, I can enlarge on that if you like, but it, it is important, I think, uh, to, uh, to recognize that where the neo-Darwinian approach has been most uh, uh, when, when it really gets, gets its purchase, and where indeed, as practiced by some, some quite sophisticated mathematic, mathematical modeling um, pays off, is at the level of the population and not the individual. And the individuals in neo-Darwinian, in the neo-Darwinian approach, are simply the, uh, the carriers of, of genes and, and other forms of information uh, which are selected at population level under environmental pressures which the neo-Darwinian behavioral scientists tries to identify, trace, and show why they are <coughs> the influences which produce the collective behavior pattern, which is different in the way that it is, that interests them, and whatever different ways they are interested, from behavior in the other cultures, groups, institutions, communities, and societies that they study. So I, I think that, that's, that, that's enough for me. I'd, I'd be happy to be questioned at the end by anybody who wants to take issue. Um, I'll now hand over to Luke. Thank you. I'm going to try and whiz through in 20 minutes, um, uh, really carrying on actually from where Gary left off, but trying to um, give you a brief overview of people who study evolutionary approaches to 
human behaviour because um, the field is actually very diverse. It's not just um, one way of doing this. There's a, there's, a, there's a great variety of this, which, which partly depends on what disciplines we come from and partly depends what we're interested in and what we're studying. So, and also there's several different kinds of questions. You can answer these questions at all sorts of different levels. So just to make a distinction at the very beginning between proximate and ultimate evolutionary explanations. Now, a lot of arguments you hear people about whether is this something caused by this or that. Well, there's different ways of answering that question. Proximately, you can answer it with respect to mechanisms, hormones, mental modules in your brain, or development, or the whole nature-nurture debate. Those are all those are all what we call the how questions, the proximate questions about what um, leads to someone to behave in a particular way. And then there's the ultimate questions, which could include the evolutionary history that led up to that point, or it could include the adaptive function. In other words, what selective pressures, what evolutionary pressures led that behaviour to be selected for. And these questions are not mutually exclusive. So you often hear people arguing, a lot of the arguments between social scientists and natural scientists is, Someone's putting forward a proximate explanation. Someone else is putting forward an ultimate explanation. And they could both be right or wrong. So just to give an example, I mean, if you're a biologist, this is reasonably clear. So if you want to ask the question, why do birds fly south in winter, a proximate explanation might be day length, uh, changes your hormones, which increases your desire to fly. Whereas the ultimate explanation is that birds that make this trip leave more offspring. Okay, if you ask a question about human societies, it gets a bit more complicated because you've got to think about cultural selection as well. We are probably the only species that has um, a strong cultural inheritance route as well as a genetic inheritance <coughs> route influencing what we do. So why do people in modernising societies have so few children? That's the question I have to be interested in. Well, approximately, we've acquired ideas and values that cause us to allocate our resources to other things. Ultimately, possibly because people with these ideas have had more influence at transmitting these ideas. That could be a cultural level explanation. Or perhaps there's a quantity quality trade-off and it's only children that are heavily invested in that are being competitive. And so we want our children to succeed so we're investing heavily in them and having very few. So right from the start you can see there's more than one possible explanation here or more than one way of asking that question. So I want to just briefly outline three schools of thought. There's probably actually way more than three now, but these are perhaps the main ones in the contemporary field. Human behavioural ecology or evolutionary ecology, which I guess is the camp I most strongly affiliate with. Evolutionary psychology, which Gary's touched on as well. And also gene culture co-evolutionary theory, which uh, Gary also touched on. Or just, which uh, sometimes now more referred to as cultural evolution, where I also have uh, interests so you, if you learned about sociobiology, if you're in a social science department, you probably heard about it as a sort of a bad thing, and you probably don't hear about it very much anymore, and that, that word isn't really used, as you're sort of wondering if it's sort of dead, and it's, it's sort of dead, but it's kind of evolved. In other words, it's left, um, if you like, these kind of descendants. So evolutionary ecologists, uh, just to Briefly, to sort of explain where they're coming from, natural selection is efficient. It works on phenotypic strategies, which are sort of optimal to a species niche, and that includes their behaviours. Whereas, as Gary pointed out, evolutionary psychologists are more interested in the brain as an organ selected by natural selection, whereas the cultural evolutionists are more interested in ideas, memes, cultural variants, whatever you want to call them, which can be transmitted in different ways from genes. 
We tend to study different kind of things. Evolutionary ecologists are trying to work out the fitness consequences of behavior, whereas evolutionary psychologists are more interested in mental modules and psychological adaptations. Whereas cultural evolution people, they, well, they, it's, they don't, on the whole, do much empirical work, but when they do, they're interested in changes in the frequencies of ideas. And one way where we're all quite different... Studying maladaptation. Well, evolutionary ecologist is basically an adaptationist paradigm, so we tend to assume natural selection on cultural variation is efficient. Evolutionary psychologists assume it's not very efficient because they say, we evolved as hunter-gatherers, so it's almost, to put it simplistically, they have this concept of the EEA, the Environment of Evolutionary Adaptedness, which is kind of this hunter-gatherer environment. So it's almost like we've got a hunter-gatherer brain on, on our shoulders, and that this, therefore... Don't expect us to behave in an adaptive way in a modern environment because we're not living in that environment anymore. Cultural evolutionists are also very interested in maladaptation because, of course, as I just said, memes can be transmitted in a non-Mendelian way, very different from genes, and therefore outcomes that are good at spreading ideas are not necessarily the same sort of things that are good at spreading your genes. And so you can get different outcomes when you're interested in cultural evolution from when purely uh, genetically determined behaviour. So this is sort of um, the range of the field, and I'll just try and give you some brief uh, whistle-stop tour of some examples of these kinds of studies, because I don't want you to sort of think there's only kind of one way of studying the evolution of human behaviour. It's a very complex field. So evolution psychologists tend to be interested in human universals. They focused a lot on mate choice, sex differences, these kind of things. Um, Despite their emphasis on the EEA, they don't normally study hunter-gatherers. They're actually much more likely to be doing lab experiments on uh, undergraduates or whatever, rather ironically. Um, although, as I'll show you, these kind of studies are now broadening out into much wider populations and getting very different results as an as a, as a example. So, for example, this was one of the classic human universals that evolutionary psychologists wrote a lot about. If you show uh, people pictures of um, waist-hip ratios... The, the images on the bottom row have a waist-hip ratio of 0.7, whereas the top row have 0.9. And in general, people say they, they find the women on the bottom row more attractive than the women on the top row. And they, they tried this in universities all over the world, actually, and got very similar results, so came to the conclusion that this was a sort of human universal. Although it's rather interesting to think, what, what did people want in the EEA? We honestly don't really know, because we don't have much art from that period, but what we do have doesn't necessarily suggest that thin women were uh, greatly valued in, in that uh, time period. And in fact, if you now go out and actually ask what few hunter-gatherer populations there are left in the world, um, experiments that have been done on um, horticulturalists in the Amazon or Hadza uh, foragers in Tanzania... They didn't like the. Um, uh, they they didn't really care about the waist hip ratio. They just went for the fattest woman on the sheet and said that's that's the most attractive one, which was completely different from what the Western populations were were uh, saying. And there's another uh, rather interesting experiment that was done um, in the Amazon, where these are four different populations. The one of them is right out way away from contact from Western media, living right out in the forest. And then the other two populations are further down the river with C being on the coast and then D being uh, American university students. And there was a straight 
uh, basically the more remote populations preferred the fatter women and the university students preferred the thinner women and the ones in between preferred the ones in between. And another very interesting study uh, on this topic, this is not really my topic, but it's been a big topic in the sort of evolutionary psychology literature, actually did a similar experiment um, comparing... Um, do we have a point? We don't have a pointer, do we? Anyway, the black line at the top graph shows preferred BMI, which is a measure of fatness, in um, UK uh, population. So a peak around 20, which is pretty thin, but really not liking very, very thin women and fatter women also not being particularly preferred. Whereas the red line is a Zulu population in South Africa where there was a dislike for thin women, but it's very... Being fat was not considered a disadvantage at all. So just like from the Amazon. But then they looked at South African Zulus who'd migrated to Britain and their preferences started to change towards this green line here. And then they looked at the children of South Africa. So these are Britons born to South African parents uh, of Zulu origin, um, whose parents were of Zulu origin. They were British. And their preferences were pretty much indistinguishable from those born in the UK. So this idea that these preferences um, were sort of... Um, human universals really went out the window. And I think evolution psychology is now getting much more interested in this whole cultural evolution idea. So there seems to be huge cultural variation in this thing. It can change in one generation. And is there some sort of perhaps conformist bias going on here? In other words, you prefer what other people in your population prefer. That would be uh, one level of explanation. Or is it perhaps no coincidence? So, for example, in Africa, it's still true that large women have larger babies that are more likely to survive childhood diseases. Uh, less like, uh, larger women are less likely to be suffering from HIV. That could be another issue. Um, whereas in Western populations, you know, our health problems are related to fat, obesity. Uh, so maybe the underlying principle is that you're looking for good health, but what is the definition of good health is culturally variable. And that, I think, is a question that still remains uh, to be answered. The gene culture people, just to give the sort of second school of thought that we talked about, um, I've already mentioned. Um, these people are, it's sometimes called dual inheritance models because they say we can't just think about the genes as the root of um, inheritance when we build our evolutionary models. We need to think about the cultural inheritance as well, hence the term uh, dual inheritance. Very interested in how this can lead to different... Um, different patterns from simple genetic evolution. There's a huge literature at the moment on group selection and group level effects, which uh, it's a long story I can't go into here, but um, the dynamics of cultural evolution mean that it is possible possibly to get group selection in a way that you can't in genetic evolution. So that's a huge area at the moment. Tends to be very mathematical because it's very difficult to test these things empirically, so it's a very mathematical field. Uh, so when I say favourite study sites there, I put in silico, in other words, in your computer, because there aren't very many empirical studies as yet, although that is finally um, beginning to change. But just to give an example, they're interested in how different non-Mendelian routes of transmission affect cultural behaviour. So, for example, in, if it's Mendelian, you get your genes from your parents, no one else. There's no other direction for genes to go, but cultural variation... You can, what Boyd and Richardson call bias transmission, you can choose who your cultural models are. So what if they're prestigious people? For example, imagine we have an innate predisposition to copy T 
teachers, rock stars, people who have prestige. Maybe, um, you know, people vary in success at attaining influential roles, and this variation is affected by their beliefs. So cultural variants that lead to success in attaining influential roles will tend to spread. So perhaps this is explanations for things like famous climbers taking horrendous risks or indeed going back to the waist-hip ratios, supermodels getting uh, dangerously thin. So these kind of models can take us to things which look on the face of it to be clearly maladaptive from a sort of classic genetic uh, Darwinian perspective. And then finally, the third school of thought, which I think is the one with which I'm most closely aligned, I'd say um, behavioural or evolutionary ecology, um, favourite subjects, subsistence strategies, reproductive strategies, parental investment, life history theory, this kind of thing. A concentration tending to be on natural fertility populations, so mostly done by anthropologists such as myself working in uh, more traditional um, Populations, although that is uh, also uh, changing. Just to give a couple of examples from life history evolution of evolutionary approaches. Okay, so the human life history, if you look at our nearest relatives, the other great apes, the human life history is a little bit different in lots of ways. We tend to have um, child, we have this long period of time before we reproduce, but once we start reproducing, we actually reproduce at a rapid rate. And then females actually stop reproducing long before they die. So it's as if, um, compared to other animals, it's as, it's as if the reproductive part of the female life history has been sort of squished into the middle of the lifespan with this long non, non-reproductive period, both before and after. Whereas, so human females are having births about every three years in, in natural fertility populations, whereas if you compare us with the orangutan, um, this mother here, not dissimilar body weight, a normally birth rate scale quite well with body weight, is having offspring every eight years. Gibbons, which are less than 25% of our weight, are having babies every three years. So we are really churning out uh, those offspring. And the reason we think human females can do this is because of the division of labour. This is what anthropologists uh, broadly believe. So in other words, the female orangutan is doing it on her own. No one's feeding her. It's her own energy going into uh, that reproduction. Whereas in a human system, um, several people are contributing to raising those offspring. And some anthropologists have argued that's the father is the main uh, contributor, and that's why we've evolved this division of labour and these very strong pair bonds in human societies. Others have argued it's not actually the father, but it's the grandmother. And the interesting part about that explanation is that it could account for this long post-reproductive life in that we've actually evolved after a certain age to stop trying to produce children of our own and concentrate on helping our daughters to reproduce, which has been known as the kind of grandmother hypothesis for the evolution of menopause. But it has quite... um, you know, it suggests we're sort of we actually are evolved as a communally breeding species, which is an interesting idea. Which um, was one of the things um, I decided to test. Um, there happens to be um, a, a study site in the Gambia where there were demographic records going back to 1949 on four villages of births and deaths. So we thought it would be possible to use this data to actually work out 
which relatives really matter because you can actually do a sophisticated statistical analysis and see if a certain person dies, does that affect the probability of a certain relative dying? So if your mother dies, how likely are you to survive? If your grandmother dies, does that make any difference? If your father dies, does that make any difference? So that we could actually measure the importance of the sort of communal uh, efforts to raising children. And, and this historical data set covered a period when the infant mortality rate in this area was about 40% of children dying before the age of five. So there was a lot of data to work with. And just to summarize our results briefly, the ones with stars were the significant... These are odds ratios on your risk of dying. So if your mother dies when you're under the age of two... It has a very your your risk of dying goes up enormously. Although interestingly, once you're over the age of two, you can survive pretty well. So this is, you know, 15 years off self-sufficiency, but you are being looked after by others. The only other people that really mattered were your maternal grandmother, elder sist- and elder sisters. So the matriline are all having an influence on your um, survival. Although, interestingly enough, in this society, the death of your father or any of your patrilineal relatives didn't seem to make any difference. So the data was there, but it was the sort of evolutionary interest in the evolution of the human life history that encouraged us um, to look at it. And in fact, you can plug these values into various models to try and work out, are these effects big enough to actually drive the evolution of menopause? And to cut a very long story short, which I don't have time to go into now, more or less they do. Um, if you assume that grandmothers, by stopping reproduction, can actually help their daughter's children survive, speed up their daughter's reproductive rate, um, then it is possible that menopause um, can evolve as an adaptation. So that um, stimulated... Our, st- our study was following on from the Ache study at the top of this list. We were second. And then since then, a huge number of other studies have taken place Again, like our own, the data was largely out there already, but people just hadn't thought to look at it in this way until they'd sort of started taking an evolutionary perspective. Just very quickly, while we're on this sort of... Um, Ian mentioned the application. just tell you very, very quickly about another study we, I was involved in in uh, Ethiopia, a similarly demographic study where um, it's actually the red blob there is the site that I've worked in several of these areas, but the one I'm going to tell you about is um, somewhere where a development agency had put water pumps in and we thought, and we were interested in what was the effect of this energy-saving initiative on the life history. So women had to walk great distances to collect water. Um, terrible situation, and carrying really heavy pots that I couldn't even lift. And when these taps were put in some of these villages, it made a huge difference to their energy balance. We were interested... Different villages had these things put in at different times, and some villages didn't have them put in. So we had a lot of data uh, to work with once we'd collected it all. And in fact, we found exactly what um, you would hope to happen, which was that infant mortality did actually go down as as a result of this um, very welcome improvement. But as evolutionary biologists, we had also suspected that just because you have more energy, if you're not using contraception, you don't necessarily get fatter or have bigger babies. In fact, you might predict in certain situations, and this turned out to be one of them, that you would just speed up the rate at which you were having babies, which is in fact exactly uh, what happened. The pink line is after taps were introduced and the blue line is before. So after uh, two years, about um, 70% of uh, women were still not given birth again. 
before the taps, but like 50% of them had given birth again after the taps. So this is quite a significant hike in fertility, which actually precipitated also this effect, which was, again, the blue line. This is height for age. A lot of variation. The dark blue line is before the taps, uh, is villages without taps. The green line is villages with taps, and these are children up to the age of about five, which is when the first taps started going in. So this higher birth rate was associated, actually, with a slight and immeasurable increase in malnutrition, which was, again, something that is not intuitively obvious, but if you take a life history approach, you can explain what's going on. Anyway, I've got to stop now. So I was going to add all sorts of things to this slide, and then I realized the top thing was the only thing I wanted to say. Why use an evolutionary approach? Well, it generates testable hypotheses. So I'm not going to argue any one hypothesis or say whether it's true or whether it's not true. I'm going to say what you have to do is go and test it. And it's not really about what people think is going on. It's not, these important questions are not about individual interpretations. They're about going out there, getting the data, having some kind of hypothesis and testing it. And even though I sort of said there were three schools of thought, I realize that's already out of date, and I, I like Sam's phrase about non-disciplinary science because I realized that what started off as sociobiology and then sort of grew into these other things has now... These, this is not an exclusive list, and there's probably people in this room who think, well, where's evolutionary archaeology or where's um, uh, various things I think you've already mentioned? So, but these are just some of the things that I'm interested in. Um, uh, evolutionary demography, which I just talked about... Uh, Gary mentioned earlier evolutionary economics is a huge field. Every issue of Nature now has uh, something in that, that uh, being published in practically every week and all sorts of things uh, in between. So sociobiology has sort of grown up and I haven't... 20 minutes is not long enough to tell you everything that's going on in the kind of what it gave rise to. Um, but um, hopefully enough to convince you that it's... Uh, an interesting and expanding field. And I'll stop there. Yes, um, I'm one of those evolutionary economists at the uh, right-hand side at the bottom. Um, I would describe myself over the last 20 odd years as an institutional and evolutionary economist. The institutional bit, I'll, I'll explain in a minute why that connects in, or hopefully I'll get to that. But um, what I want to do is to make some quite general points about the value of Darwinism and the importance of Darwinism in the field I'm working on. Um, as Ruth said, just said, that evolutionary economics is quite a broad field. It's actually broader than the gene culture evolutionary people, and includes lots of other people as well. And some people who actually don't even want to talk about the genes. Uh, in fact, the term evolution uh, itself is broad, and Darwin didn't use it very often. Uh, Spencer popularised the term evolution. Evolution, um, the etymology of the word means unfolding. Uh, but in modern context, uh, it means anything connected with change. So I'm quite happy of using this inclusive term, evolutionary economist or evolutionary psychologist or whatever, but, uh, because inclusivity is quite important in some contexts, but it doesn't actually tell you much about what it means. And what I want to do is promote a particular meaning of evolution. Several different evolutionary paradigms. It's the only successful one, in my view. But an expense as it works, or anything like that works. And the stages theories and other versions, which have been long criticised. And that is a Darwinian version. 
And in that respect, I stand as a minority within the evolutionary economy. So I'm promoting a view which is our minority view. And I'm, um, I've been criticized by colleagues within the evolutionary economics as well as elsewhere. Well, what is the line of argument I'm putting? Well, I'm putting the line of argument that Darwinism is, in a sense, too important to be left to the biologists. Now, Darwin was a, a, a biologist. Uh, he uh, did a lot of empirical work, as you know. You can read his, uh, his uh, diaries and his books and the Voyage of Beagle and all that stuff. A minute collection of information. And from that and from inspiration from economics and other places, he developed the theory of natural selection. But I think it's widely recognised, and Donald T. Campbell was one of the people that recognised this and promoted this in a difficult period when it was not uh, acknowledged, as Gary's already said, was that there's a core set of ideas in Darwinism which actually might have a wider usage. Um, and these ideas don't mention genes. Darwin didn't mention genes. There's nothing in genes in the, any of Darwin's books. The term gene was introduced after Darwin's death. Darwin didn't have any inkling how the inheritance mechanism worked. Yet, he developed a theory of evolution so we can, I think we can abstract from Darwin a theory of evolution. It's the only systemic theory of evolution we have to explain a wide variety of evolutionary phenomena, which doesn't necessarily include the gene. We, knew, we now know, of course, that genes are important because there's biological transmission, as uh, both preceding speakers have mentioned. I'm not denying it. I'm not anti-genetics or anti-genes. I'm simply saying this. Darwinism doesn't literally depend on genes. I mean, as Richard Dawkins puts it, you can imagine another planet where there's no DNA, yet there are species, there's organisms running around, and they're reproducing by some other method. You can write science fiction if you want to think about it. And, uh, and you would still have uh, the applicability of Darwinian principles. But let's pursue that line of argument a bit more. And what kind, what kind of entities are we talking about? Well, we, we, obviously... We, in your, in your mind, you'll have organisms. But let's, let's change the paradigm of it. Let's change the, the, the metaphor of it. Let's, let's think of a world of robots. We have robots running around, which are um, very sophisticated robots because they can self-repair. Um, and they, have, um, they need to survive and to, to avoid degradation, overcome problems. They have to absorb materials in their environment. They have to have some kind of intake of energy or matter from their environment. Um, and they can, they can replicate, they can reproduce. So again, in science fiction, we have robots are running around absorbing energy and matter, which can replicate. And there, one robot, no, no two robots are identical. So, so they some have advantages in some circumstances over others. So you've got these replicating robots, which are not exactly the same. Um, and they have a further, further facility. They can actually. Uh, acquire problem solutions to their, envi to, the, to their environmental challenges. They can face a problem, like it rains and they begin to rust and then they can manufacture a little umbrella. Some, so some, some uh, problem solution. You face an environmental problem, which might be part of their social environment or their natural environment and they can adapt solutions to this and they can say, well, they pass this on. Uh, an umbrella is a good way of dealing with the rain. It stops rusting. I suggest you make one. Right? from robot to robot. Okay? So we have some uh, imperatives to survive, a capacity to replicate, some scarcity of resources, local scarcity of resources, and competition over those resources between these robots. Okay, now, now you're thinking in terms of robots, so obviously the, 
ontology we're considering of a population of varied industries also applies to organisms. There's nothing I've said about robots so far that wouldn't equally apply to organisms. The next step in my argument is to say, well, why wouldn't it also apply to social entities like social institutions? Uh, I mean, take the original inspiration of, um, of, from the economics of uh, the, the struggle survived in Darwinism was from Malthus, an economist who considered competition and economists since have gone on about competition one of the central issues in economics is to understand how firms compete, what firms are how they compete and how they survive and how long sort of their life cycles are and all these questions, what they do to survive and so on and so forth so are firms as such entities like robots or organisms which are competing with other firms which are dissimilar passing on problem solutions ostensibly yes so we have social entities which could fit into the same broad abstract description to which Darwinian principles apply now if we do that then we must actually look at the way in which these particular entities uh, uh, retain problem solutions, pass them on, replicate, and all the rest of it. Now, to, to, uh, to do that, first of all, well, we need to do several things. We need to, uh, apart from looking at the real world and getting our hands dirty and doing clinical research, as well as doing that, we need to be clear what the Darwinian principles are. Well, as we all know, most people will know, there's three basic Darwinian principles concerning variation, inheritance, and selection. Okay? There's slightly different words used by different authors, different philosophers of biology just use different words. But what do we mean by this? Uh, variation means there must be some kind of explanation. Well, first of all, you're, you're dealing with an ontology of variety. You have a world where there's variation. And there must be some explanation of how that variety is created and sustained through time. Now, in regard to genes, that story is basically mutation and genetic recombination that generates variety all the time. Now, it's not going to be the same thing in the social domain or with the robots or with those other species on that other planet, but there must be some story how variety is maintained and, and, and preserved. Um, inheritance or replication is a story about how problem solutions, or what information is used, are passed on from generation to generation. There must be some story about how, how this information is acquired and how is it, how is it passed on. So if you take firm-to-firm uh, -firm information transmission, do they learn from one another? Do they copy the production techniques? Uh, do they all go to um, Harvard and do MBAs and learn how to do it there? What is the mechanism right, by which one firm learns from another how to produce widgets or whatever? Uh, how does new variety occur? How does innovation occur? What's the role of the entrepreneurs, the individuals? All these questions then become subsidiary to this Darwinian framework from which you address the fundamental question about uh, how <coughs> replication or inheritance occurs. And the third point is selection. It isn't natural selection because um, for Darwin himself, natural selection was not the only mechanism of selection. There was sexual selection as well. So it's not just exposing these entities to a natural environment and saying that the, the fittest in regard to that environment will survive, it's selection in a social context. And for reasons that have been already discussed, this can be maladaptive. It doesn't necessarily mean 
efficiency. This is a big misunderstanding that uh, selection always means the most efficient. Uh, some of the introductions of Darwinian ideas in economics um, have that as a kind of a, a apologetic argument that uh, once you introduce the principle of selection, you have an understanding of why the fittest firms are surviving. Well, that isn't necessarily true. It's true in some contexts, but it depends on certain assumptions. And so, <clears throat> a lot of work being done on that. Uh, again, it's a long story which I haven't got time to go into. So selection can do it, but doesn't necessarily mean selection of the fittest in regard to a particular environment. You can have maladaptive um, combinations and certain reasons for inefficiency being uh, sustained through, the, through, the, through time. Okay, so my work is actually looking uh, at the application of Darwinian principles, particularly in the business context and in institutional evolution as such. One of my worries about the existing literature, many people, including Campbell, and in fact the idea goes way back. The idea of applying um, these principles to social entities goes back to Darwin himself, because he said my ideas could also apply to the evolution of language. And there was a, um, immediately afterwards, in 1871, Walter Badgett, the economist come political theorist, produced a book where he actually tried to do that, and Darwin commented on it, and he did it in regard to political entities and talked about information transmission through that. And it was done by several other people, including Thorstein Veblen, about 100 years ago, and then it was forgotten until Campbell and a few others resuscitated the idea after the Second World War. Now, so a lot of people are thinking about this, the idea of uh, informational transmission through the social level, uh, or indeed multiple social levels are possible. My concern actually is what do we mean by information? Uh, what, what, what's, what's the carrier of information in that sense? And I think the word meme is um, it's a nice uh, popular term that Dawkins coined in uh, 1976. But I don't think it tells us very much. And there's a huge confu confusion about what memes are. Are they behaviour? Are they propensities? Are they bits of information? And so on. And that confusion has not abated. So I would prefer to get behind the notion of information because it's, a, it's problematic in biology too. In what sense is DNA information? If we look at our DNAs, is there information in there? Philosophically, that's a problematic question. I think what, what a better idea is programs, or uh, like, like using an analogy of a computer program, program-based behaviour, and looking at psychological me mechanisms which program us, which we can change and which are often culturally dependent. Um, and, and also at the firm level, we consider the analogue or the higher level of... Uh, correspondent to the individual habits or dispositions to be organisational routines and treat those as replicators. So unpacking the notion of information and seeing the actual organisational entities which carry information through time and create the dispositions to act conditionally under certain circumstances is an important part of the research agenda. Now, um, what does this mean? Well, um, there's a lot of confusion uh, about this, and I get uh, criticisms. One, one criticism is that this is stretching biological analogies too far. Well, the argument is not about analogies at all. Uh, in saying that Darwinian principles apply to evolving social entities, which is the claim, you're not saying that uh, the way the mechanisms in which they operate are similar to biological mechanisms. There's, no, there's nothing in the, at, at the social level which corresponds to DNA. I mean, there's sort of double helix and splitting apart, 
Um, uh, sexual recombination. Uh, you can get close analogues with some thinking about mergers or something like that, but it doesn't really work. And again, as been uh, mentioned, the mechanisms of cultural transmission are not necessarily parental. There can be other sources. So you, when you go down to the level of detail, the mechanisms are hugely different. As David Hull says, is again one of the figures that's been responsible for uh, recreating this line of research, actually there's differences within biology itself. Mm. Think of the procreation of grasses. I mean, grasses can basically procreate by seed or by sucker. Now, suckers are not uh, are identical DNA, but it creates a new plant, and you can cut it at the root, and it's a new 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 clump of grass. Now, that method of replication uh, is not by um, <coughs> in the way of creating seeds and by fertilisation. It's very different. There's different methods, um, um, mechanisms of replication for single-cell entities and multi-cell entities for invertebrates and invertebrates. There's a huge amount of variety within biology to which biological principles apply. So it's a misconception to say that Darwinian principles are narrowly focused on one type of mechanism. No, they're very, very broad principles which can accommodate a huge variety of mechanisms. And for that reason, they're also applicable to the social domain, which itself contains enormous variety. Um, the, the, the other argument is, well, um, how can you show the value of this, of this research? Well, I think it's in the early stages. Uh, it's in a pre-empirical or exploratory stage. Uh, a lot of the work by philosophers of biology actually is involved in honing down the key concepts, like the concept of the replicator. What does it precisely mean? Um, I mentioned the problem with the concept of information. Uh, we need fairly precise general definitions of these terms to actually explore the possibility of applying these ideas to, to uh, uh, economic or business phenomena. But actually there's a great deal of empirical research which relates to this. Um, I mentioned how firms learn from each other. There's a lot of work on that and some of it is beginning to be inspired by people working in, in an evolutionary uh, framework. Howard Aldrich, for example, is, a, is an important contributor to an organisation of sociologists who wrote a book called Organisations Evolving. So it is a um, potentially um, very important area of research within this broader area of uh, evolutionary economics, which links together insights about institutions and routines with an evolutionary framework. In that sense, I think it shows that Darwinism um, has a, a very a great importance as a, a full explanation or a full framework for understanding uh, evolution in the social domain as well as the biological. Okay, well, I'm the only person on this platform there who hasn't done and doesn't do primary research on the Darwinian questions, and therefore you're getting something of a lay commentary. What I'm going to do is to read a short paper. First of all, I'd like to make a distinction, which other speakers also made, between what we might think of as biological Darwinism and the transposition by way of analogy or metaphor of Darwin's ideas of variation, replication and selection to the social sphere. In fact, some versions of biological Darwinism have been very unwelcome to social scientists who have defended, often as a radical social constructionism, the very idea that the social is determined in any way 
by biological factors or substrates. I regard that exclusion as wrong. After all, mortality and reproduction are natural facts, and all individuals and societies have to cope with these. Biology has a primary causal role in human affairs, mediated by social process, as it must be. I also think that some strictly Darwinian ideas applied to the social are illuminating, though I don't think of myself as a social Darwinist. I had in mind, for example, the investigations of the development of human infants and children, as these have been studied by attachment theorists following the work of John Bowlby, and also by psychoanalysts, whose interest in Darwin's ideas has, however, so far been less than of the attachment people. Essentially, both these bodies of theory draw attention to the similarities between the needs of mammals, in particular primates, in their early nurture, and the needs of human infants. In Bowlby's terms, if human infants are deprived of a secure attachment to a sustaining mother figure in their first year or two of life, some of the capacities which they would develop, given those conditions, will be damaged. They will likely to become, be likely to become more insecure, anxious, dependent or conflictual, and will be more likely to have difficulties in fulfilling the roles they may later have as parents themselves. Impressive empirical studies have validated and elaborated these ideas, enabling investigations of the learned modes of attachment of parents, inferred from their descriptions of their own childhood, to predict the probable modes of attachment of their children, even yet unborn to them. Current political programmes directed to improving the qualities of nurture in the early years draw implicitly or explicitly on these ideas and findings. Sarah Hardy, in her splendid book Mother Nature, has taken these understandings further from an evolutionary point of view. She's proposed that the vulnerable conditions of infants in hunter-gatherer societies have led to the selection of certain survival strategies to become genetically encoded in the constitution of human infants and parents. They are at risk of abandonment by their mothers and in competition from siblings in conditions of scarcity. Furthermore, they are at risk should their mother find, find herself with a sexual partner who is not the infant's own father. Even today, the rate of violence among, for, towards children from stepfathers is much higher than towards natural fathers. Thus, Hardy argues, human infants are designed to be highly attractive to their parents, and indeed to adults in general, as well as having a piercing capacity to make any distress or fear they may feel known to all in their locality. More unexpectedly, Hardy's evolutionary perspective explains why there is an inherent ambivalence in the relationship between infants and their mothers, and between infants and siblings, and reasons for suspicion by infants of parental sexual activity, which is likely to lead to the birth of new babies, and thus competitors. As the philosopher, most psychoanalytically oriented philosopher Jim Hopkins has pointed out, the psychoanalyst Melanie Klein's picture of the potential for anxiety and inner conflict in the relationships of early infancy, so at odds with sentimental idealisation of the mother-infant bond, finds a new support in these conjectures. In Hardy's view, even the mother and her baby placenta may be competitors for survival in times of scarcity, as well as later the mother and her, in, and her newborn infant. Hardy makes clear why it is that the abandonment of infants at extreme moments has been a rational survival strategy for certain peoples at certain times. The potential for conflict between mother and infant for Oedipal anxieties concerning father and possible displacement by new babies, and mother's capacity for anxiety concerning their capability of sustaining their babies, and also their need for social support in doing so, are all rendered more intelligible if we think ourselves back to the hunter-gatherer era in which human genetic endowments are set down. In other words, the rather stark picture of infant mental life and parental infant mental life set out by Melanie Klein and her supporters 
seems to me to make a great deal more sense, given this, as it were, prehistory, than uh, it does uh, in imagining other, as it were, stories. Now, the ideas of attachment theorists and psychoanalysts in the rather mother and child centered British uh, psychoanalytic tradition are, of course, shaped around a particular value perspective. The capacities of social relationships which they hold, which they hold, are likely to emerge from nurturant patterns of child rearing, but also ones which they humanly prefer. Other forms of child rearing have a tendency to lead to other forms of social character, an extreme case being induced autistic states which occur in conditions of very extreme emotional neglect, as the nurseries of, for Romanian orphans, um, studied by, as in the nurseries for Romanian orf, orphans, studied by Michael Rutter, which were found to be generative of autism, uh, contradicting uh, a view that autism must be the product of only neurological factors. There tend to be equations drawn between these preferred modes of socialization and those which are deemed, following these ecological and thus evolutionary arguments, to be natural to human beings. I do not hold that nature, for example our genetic inheritance, does or should shape our moral beliefs. However, the range of possibilities which it demonstrates to us may contribute to our choice of such moral beliefs, certainly can clarify what possible worlds are indeed likely or unlikely, and what costs and benefits they may each have. Now to the application of Darwinist perspectives to sociological and anthropological analysis, of which we have such distinguished exponents right here. I agree with a, a distinction that Jeffrey Hodgson has made, that the distinction between genotype and phenotype seems fundamental in making use of the Darwinian analogy for the understanding of social development, since it's so central to Darwin's own theory. Roughly speaking, if you're a sparrow, there's no point in learning to swim. What gives or would give potential explanatory mileage to the Darwin idea of social evolution would be to show that it is driven or constrained in part by structures which are not alterable by cultural choice or human will. If such replicators can be identified as social practices, or systaps in, uh, in Gary Runciman's term, or whatever, and if social development could be traced through their replication, this would indeed establish a new kind of understanding. In particular, in identifying the limits of the possible, the unavoidable constraints on human desires and choices that have to be made, which I regard as one of the main goals of the human sciences to clarify. Social science, for me, represents something like a means of empirical access to Freud's reality principle. The great clarity of the Darwinian programme, which has continued through its successive stages, from Darwin, through Mendel's discovery of genes and chromosomes, to the biologic biochemical mapping of the genome, is that these replicators do remain conceptually and in reality to a large degree distinct from the processes by which they are selected. Variation and selection take place, so to speak, in different conceptual spaces. I still find it difficult to see how this distinction can be maintained in sociological analysis. Some words about Darwinian and other sociologists. The nearest competitors for social evolution, social evolutionism, such as in the uh, immense work of, uh, of uh, Gary Runciman, are the works of neo-Weberian historical sociologists, such as Michael Mann and Anthony Giddens. Since Gary Runciman is, or was, I think, a neo-Weberian himself, the question of how one differentiates a neo-Weberian historical sociology from a social evolutionist one, and what are the comparative advantages of the latter, is one I would like to ask him to clarify in our discussion. It seems to me that neo-evolutionists and Weberian historical sociology, at one time at any rate, shared the purpose of displacing teleological, monistic theories of history, whether these were structural functionalists or Marxists, with more pluralist theories. 
These latter gave way to contingency and to the actual variety of social possibilities and sought to radically separate facts from values. That is, the equation between what is inevitable and necessary and what is good, which was, and incidentally still is, used to justify much coercion by those who believed that history was on their side. The Neo-Viberians, and I think uh, Gary, were in particular opposed to the Marxist view that the mode and relations of production were the central variable in historical development. Modes of coercion and persuasion, in Runciman's terms, took their place alongside the mode of production as, potential, as potentially determinants or hegemons. Regimes or social formations could be stabilised under the domination of military power, such as the Roman Empire, or ideological power, theocratic states, or under condivided forms of power, just as well as under forms of economic domination. It followed from this argument that historical convergence between social systems was not to be anticipated as inevitable. In evolutionary terms, different social forms might prevail as peaks in their particular fitness landscapes, and did so, so the neo-Viberians argued, for millennia. We could thus look, forward, look towards a social horizon of considerable, if not infinite, social variety. One difference between Runciman's evolutionist view and those of his neo-Viberian peers is that whereas they tend to assign agency to collective actors within the frame of a kind of methodological individualism, immobilising different power resources in their own interests, so to speak, he assigns agency to social practices or systems by which human actors are the constructed as much as the constructors. Multiplying the sources of causal historical agency, as Bruno Latour has also been doing with his concept of actors, hybrid entities like bacteria, or indeed the unconscious, which once discovered, proceed to transform the world, seems to me an interesting development in the theory of agency, opening up new lines of inquiry. Now, at the time in the 1980s, when the historical materialist paradigm was falling to pieces before our very eyes, this pluralisation of historical analysis was liberating, and in any case seemed necessary. Autonomy was seen in all sorts of places, in the self-generating ferment of the French Revolution by François Furet, in the role of states in revolutions by Thedas Scotchpole, for example, where it had gone unnoticed or, un or denied before within a historical materialist young framework. A similar process of differentiation and pluralisation took place in the analysis of class structures, not least in Gary's earlier work, as trends seemed to go in the opposite direction to Marx's favourable prospect of pluralisation and immiseration. But 20 years or so on, does this neo-Bavarian or evolutionist recasting of the historical narratives seem quite as convincing as it did? Hasn't, after all, capitalism continued on its victorious path, eating up alternative and competing social models as it proceeds? As China and India become major powers within the capitalist social order, albeit with their differences and variances, what alternative forms of society now seem likely to resist this pattern of development? If one takes just the first part of Marx's historical theory, the part that explains the triumph of capital, rather than the second part, which anticipated its later contradictions and supersession, if we think of Marx as a theorist of capitalism rather than of socialism, doesn't he seem to have got quite a lot of it right? Perhaps Marx's underlying theory that the mode of production is likely to be decisive in contest with the modes of coercion and persuasion had something to be said for it after all. And one can see some reasons in evolutionist terms too. It seems that the powers generated by and within the expanding mode of production turn out to shape modes of coercion and persuasion too, in a way that is less likely to happen once this economic tiger gets free in reverse. 
The Americans won the Cold War in part because they could afford their military-industrial complex, while the Soviet Union could not afford its own. And the modern global media, major means of persuasion, are both a product of and flag bearers for the market system. This also make, makes sense in terms of the interest of human agents, as Jerry Cohen argued long ago in his book Marx, Karl Marx's Theory of History. This is because transformations in the means of production create quite new powers in a partly positive sum game of which rational subjects would want to take advantage if they could. If this is an evolutionary competition, it seems to me to be one in which one social species, capitalism, does, after all, have a capacity to outdo all others in its domination of the environment. Ah, the environment. Here is a problem and a limit to the endless self-expansion of this system, which may even give scope, possibly in a future condition of dire crisis, for other social species to challenge its hegemony, or perhaps to occupy some of the spaces left free by its decline. One is reminded of the period of the dinosaurs, and what may have happened when the asteroids collided with what was then their Earth. Of course, one hopes not. Can I suggest, in putting your question, you would say, which of us you want to answer or whether you want to throw it open for any of us to have a go. Would, would that be would, would that be sensible? Uh, and perhaps like I said, it's a question, like you put a question directly to me, I'll answer it very quickly and then you can take that up or not uh, um, if you like. Um, it, it seems to me that to the extent that, that uh, uh, I'm speaking with the enthusiasm of a convert, because as I said, when, when I was a graduate student, um, in the United States, my mentors would have been amazed uh, um, at the kind of, uh, to hear any of us actually talking in the terms in which we are now, back in, um, in the 1960s. Um, but I think it could be quite neatly summarized, because uh, Max Weber did, he knew all about Darwinism, and he was very interested in the ideas of adaptation selection, and you can show from his own writings that he actually misunderstood them. And, and uh, he, like Marx, was still trapped um, in an ultimately teleological view of, of, of human progress. And it was rationalization, this, this inexorable uh, um, process. And the whole idea of variation, selection, and unique path dependent, a word that hasn't come up yet, but which, which is very significant, I think, in itself, but, um, evolutionary trajectories in the various human populations, groups, institutions, economies, and all of this. This, this simply wasn't addressed um, by the founding fathers of 20th century sociology. And I can, I can enlarge on that if you like, but that's just a quick uh, response to the question that Mike specifically wanted me to address. But, but I said that, that's, that's, I'm here to chair this, so I'm perfectly happy to <laughs> address questions, and by all means do. Uh, um, but, but the floor is yours at the back. Thank you. Uh, it seems to me that it's quite strange to talk in these terms without concentrating on two aspects of evolutionary theory that seem to get neglected and we've had long enough to watch evolutionary theory in action to make the judgments. The first is that a lot of biology and a lot now of social anthropology is done in the light of evolutionary theory. That's to say it generates testable hypotheses. In that case, it's fantastically fruitful. But what evolutionary theory has not succeeded in doing is Darwin's original title. It's completely hopeless at explaining speciation. 
we don't know how one species or grey or clay gives rise to another. So it seems to me rather strange to try to apply a Darwinian evolutionary theory, a Darwinian theory of change, to successions of human social groupings, firms, whatever. I invite any comment from any of you on that. Well, I wouldn't say it was completely hopeless at understanding speciation. I think, I think that's taking it a bit far. I mean, I think some people would disagree with you on that. There's, I mean, we know that, um, you know, there's various species concepts either to do with, um, you know, physical boundaries to gene flow or, or um, sort of ecological boundaries to gene flow, in other words, hybrids between groups not doing well and um, all sorts of reproductive isolation mechanisms. I think there is quite a lot of study on all those kind of things that is um, getting somewhere. Um, so I'd, I wouldn't say that was an unsolved problem, actually. Um, now, obviously, we've only got one species in humans, and biologists rejected group selection on genes uh, <coughs> well Darwin didn't talk about group selection but then it sort of popped up and became popular and then it had to be rejected again um, and it was sort of rejected thoroughly in the 20th century but um, I guess some of us have referred to it, that cultural group selection is now popping its head up um, and one of the reasons why I think people started getting interested in competition between groups and cultural group selection is that, you, that all these various people we've been talking about, like Sam Bowles, Gintis, Boyd, Richardson, David Sloan Wilson, whatever, have been making these models whereby... Um, I mean, the reason why genetic group selection doesn't work is that you can't maintain the integrity of groups within a species. As soon as you have any migration between groups... Um, so let's say you're trying to look at, for those of you who don't understand, say the evolution of altruism. You say groups full of altruists do better than groups without altruists. But if you get one selfish person migrating into a group full of altruists, they're going to do really well. They'll benefit from all the altruists. So they'll reproduce, and in the end, the group full of altruists will be invaded by selfish people, and that's, that's the end of that. But um, with your cultural phenotype, you can change... So if you've got some mechanism acting like conformist bias or altruistic punishment, punishment by other members of the group against people that don't conform, then when your selfish person migrates into your group of altruists, you can force them to become an altruist and change. So you can't change your genetic makeup, but you can change your cultural uh, variation during your lifetime. And to sort of, again, cut a very long story short, models which include those kind of processes, either conformist bias, altruistic punishment or whatever, can maintain variation between groups. So multi-level selection has got back into favour. So, um, you know, there's been a huge resurgence of literature in the last five years, really, on um, how multi-level selection or group, cultural group selection might explain... Um, some of cultural evolution. I mean, culture, as people have said, is often defined as a property of the, of the group, not just of the individual. And I guess the challenge was how can a, you know, how can an evolutionary, how can a Darwinian system lead to that when you know behavioural ecologists have have emphasised the individual? And I, 
um, for me, that's but that's you know that's been the sort of biggest, um, the most interesting output of this whole gene culture coevolutionary modelling. I mean, that to me, and to everyone else, and to Nature, and to all the big journals, has been the big, the big area. I think that's really been grabbing the headlines of late. Um, that's addressed your question about speciation. I, I suppose I was drifting the question more to um, human cultural uh, yeah. entities like food, yeah. and wondering why we want to apply this kind of evolutionary model in a wholly new context. Then I'll just perhaps comment was it in, in a famous uh, passage, not, not in the origin, but in the center of the map. Uh, Darwin did envisage the possibility of cultural intellectual. You, know, you can't read it any other way. And indeed, he anticipated, uh, uh, without knowing anything about Nash equilibria, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the insight uh, um, that is now being exploited in a much more sophisticated and uh, mathematical model. Now, whether there is a useful analogy um, between what goes on as groups form and reform and means or whatever you want to call it, uh, are favoured in uh, competition under environmental uh, pressure you know, is, uh, is a controversial question. But uh, I, I think that if we could have the great man himself sitting on the platform knowing as much as, as we all know, uh, I think he'd have no difficulty in answering your question. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, could I ask a question which comes, comes from reading some of uh, the great Alfred Russell Wallace's uh, stuff? Uh, um, as, as you know, um, Wallace's view, I think, was that uh, sufficient evolution had taken place to enable humans to cope with the environments that they find themselves in. So the, the Darwinian process had kind of taken place as far as he was concerned, as far as humans go. Um, if you take that line, then admittedly, if something big happens, like being hit by an asteroid or environmental degradation or something of that kind, some further adaptation will need to take place. But if you do take his view, um, he then goes on to say that, well, as far as man is concerned, uh, we are able to determine ourselves to a large degree what will happen to society. It's not, it's not at the mercy of natural selection forces. Um, so that the, the, the path that can be chosen is a kind of purposive path um, in principle. Um, would the comment like would the panel like to comment in general on, on that? Have I got it right? And, well, and, can, can, can I take that one first and then yeah. invite others? Because um, and uh, uh, it's interesting that, that John Bowlby was referred to earlier. As far as I know, the first person to draw uh, um, explicitly a very interesting distinction between what he called designed and evolution adaptions, but of course. Between designed and evolutionary, this was his, his terminology. Because, of course, nobody, least of all Darwin, I mean, again, you, you'll see it there in the, uh, in the dissent, he says, I, I am not denying that, that, that actions can be performed not merely instinctively with the aid of the free will. Um, but the, uh, this point is rather interestingly made by, by Wilson and, and, in, in the uh, in, in the context of, of altruism, uh, one of the insights which, which comes out of the, the neo-Darwinian way of looking at it is, does it matter what is the origin of the innovation? Because whether the innovation succeeds or fails 
depends on selective pressures in the environment, which the purposive initiator may influence up to a point, but only to a limited degree. And it doesn't matter if in cultural evolution the, the founder of a successful, let's call it religion, you know, without getting into what a, a religion um, is, uh, uh, where the idea comes from, it might as well be random. It could come from a hallucination, a vision on a mountaintop, the reinterpretation of, of, of an inherited a holy text. Uh, you only have to look at the early history of, of the great religion. See, it is almost random. It really might as well be random where these very strange ideas come from, which, which then catch on. If you say, well, well, how do they catch on? Then it's extraordinarily illuminating to try and generate testable hypotheses within this, this, this framework, which, of course, uh, um, the people are doing. The, the fact that human behavior is, is purposive uh, doesn't remove it you know, out of reach of the neo-Darwinian paradigm. On the contrary. But can, can I ask others if they want to? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah I think the... I'll share your interest and fascination in Wallace, but uh, I, I, my reaction to Wallace ultimately, despite the richness of his thinking and the different uh, line of inquiry he takes from compared to Darwin, I think ultimately Darwin's letter to Wallace is right. I, I fear you might have abandoned the child we've jointly created. Because um, Wallace's problem was he couldn't see natural selection explaining the complexity of the human brain. He'd done a lot of. A lot of uh, uh, anthropological work, visiting all sorts of places around the world, looking at um, uh, less complex societies and, and coming to the conclusion, which I think we readily accept these days, that um, physiologically and also mentally, uh, the so-called primitive peoples were just as well developed as people in, quotes, civilized societies. There was no major difference, which was a, a quite revolutionary for the 19th century, but commonplace in 20th century thinking. Now, all this problem is how could natural selection then explain this complex human brain? Right? And he, what does he do? He goes into spiritualism. Uh, I mean, just abandons uh, what we know called Scott Goodness. Now, I think that, what's interesting, he, he, the question was a good, good one. How, how does natural selection explain the complexity of the human brain? And Darwin didn't have an answer. Inklings, he always did, but didn't have an answer. The beginnings of an answer were found by a guy just down the road in the University of was College, or Bristol College, University College, was one, Conway Lloyd Morgan, who said that in human society, evolution has is transferred to the environment. In other words, he began to be a dual inheritance theorist. He began to say that not, we've not just got genetic evolution, we're also constructing this world within which we as units are evolving. So the selection environment isn't just the natural world and the catastrophes and trials that it uh, makes us go through, but also the, the artifacts of civilization, the schooling, the institutions that we go through, these two. And this process, which holds a feedback between the cultural and institutional on the one hand and the genetic creates a possibility of rapid development of human mental capacities. That was his argument. That started over 100 years ago. Um, and that's basically one of the origins of the dual narrative argument. So I think Wallace's question was right, but uh, his solution was unacceptable. Uh, and uh, I think the answer is found in that, that kind of line of inquiry. 
Well, I, I, I've got a number of reactions to make, but I'll, I'll keep it short. It's a good time. I, I think that in light of this discussion, that words like purpose and agency have to be reconsidered. Right? What they actually mean. What does agency mean? What does purposefulness mean? Because we can use them in very, very loose ways, but agency is just the capacity to act, in which case a bacteria has got the capacity to act. And that's also an agent. So, uh, what does it mean in that context? Or, um, and purpose can be programmed to act in a certain way, like uh, a, an ant or a fly or something reacting to some sensory stimulus would actually act in a certain way, and you can say that that is purposeful. I think we have to redefine these terms in this context. I think there's something which we humans have in plenty, which is prefigured in our animals, and that is the capacity to, 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 to prefigure future solutions to problems. We can think through something in our minds before we actually act. Now that's prefigured in other species. Other species have that to some degree, but that capacity is not nearly so well developed, even in other apes as it is in humans. So there's, there's, degrees of, there's, there's, there's a link here, but purposefulness has a special meaning in the human context, which it doesn't have, uh, it has more generally. So we have to redefine those terms. We define them either broadly or narrowly, or use different words. Uh, they cannot be transplanted directly from sort of bog standard 20th century sociology into this domain. And there are various new questions about the meanings of them. Let's again give credit to Darwin, he's been yeah. proved right about the degree of intentionality uh, uh, and, and uh, conscious agency in other species. I mean, that's, that's, Ruth, do you, want, do you want to say anything about that? Or, or Wallace? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not really an expert. I mean, I know Wallace and Darwin were struggling with their religious beliefs, obviously, as well. And Darwin. I think... Uh, no, well, uh, well, except not in the sense that there was a 20-year pause before he actually wrote his work. I think he's struggling, <laughs> struggling with the capacity to admit it to others. Yes, yes, exactly, that's what I mean. Whereas, whereas Wallace, you know, really was struggling there. Um, um, but well, I'm not an expert. He became a spiritualist. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I, I'm going back on the, the sort of question of free will, and I mean... You, you know, I, I agree actually with what's been said about you know definitions because obviously the fact that humans can plan ahead and think about what they want to do and try and get things in the direction the way they want to go is certainly true but the interesting question is where do they want to go and why do they want to go there and that's what the evolutionary psychologists are trying to work out you know I mean why do we want what we want well maybe evolutionary is even all this evolutionary analysis, I mean, you know, like I mentioned, this big um, debate about group, cultural group selection. I mean, do we have pro-social motives, all these ultimatum games? We seem to share money more than a strict um, selfish motive would appear to suggest we should. So do we have pro-social motivations? And then what these people are trying, you know, all these evolutionary models are trying to work out is, how could such things have evolved? So the question isn't, do we have free will? Is it's it's not what can can we do what we want to do? It's 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 why do we want to do that? And when you play the ultimate game of cultures, you find very clear uniformities, uh, you know, but but also a degree of variation, uh, yes. which shows that people have different purposes. I and mean, some of that was touched yes. on in, in your presentation. And we are back in, in the really interesting question: is how they interact as yes. part of this common co-evolutionary process. But, but, yeah. Mike, do you, do you want to come? Yes, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't agree with the proposition 
that we have now arrived at a situation in which human beings are now purposeful, and therefore the evolutionary stuff doesn't matter. Because, as I said, I think there are respects in which we are still constrained by our genetic inheritance, and therefore the exploration of how that happens and how that's worked out remains an interesting and important question. What I do have still have much greater problems with is actually Gary's kind of argument about you can apply the Darwinian method to innovations and variations in society on the grounds that it doesn't matter where the variations come from, and you can still then understand the uh, make a kind of distinction between the process by which variations come about and the process by which they're, as it were, selected between. The problem for me with that argument is, is that it seems that in human societies, the process of innovation, the process of variation, and the process of selection or competition are hopelessly mixed up. The powerful control the variations in significant ways. They run the research laboratories, they organize the technologies, etc., etc. So I can't see how the model where you can treat variations as random and piecemeal and then look at a competition of species or individuals to survive. I don't see how that maps onto the human process. And because I don't think it does map onto the human process, I think we're left in trying to understand the competition between entities, between social practices, at really something like the sociological resources we always have. I mean, the Bavarian version of that is that you have actors disposing of various kinds of resources, economic, coercive, persuasive, and fighting for space and doing what they can. And you can explain quite a lot of what happens in society by reference to these you know, very, very complex kind of descriptions that are necessary to explain why it was that the Roman Empire failed or why it was that this or that happened. The trouble is, I don't see what is distinctively Darwinian about that mode of explaining the selection between variants. And I don't think the variants are themselves all that random, because I think the process of variation and the process of selection become so implicated with one another. I would, however, make one observation about one area where it seems to me replication and selection seem to be sufficiently distinct that the model seems to work. Ruth put a, 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 a diagram on the board of an evolutionary tree of Darwinian social science. And here you have this speciation of subsections of science, which, is, which does look very, very Darwinian. Now, why might that be? Well, it might be that we use this model to explain what we do ourselves, but I don't think that's true. I think what she's describing is a perfectly good model for describing how lots of scientific paradigms work. Indeed, I use that model myself to try to make sense of psychoanalysis as an ongoing research program. The reason it works may be that in organized science, the process of replication and variation, the process of variation, is indeed effectively randomized in the sense that lots and lots of people try to produce new ideas and compete to you know, develop them. They do produce them under the context of, in the framework of normal science, in rather piecemeal ways. And there is then indeed a process of selection between them, which is institutionally separate from the process of producing the things. I.e., you don't sit on the journal committee when your article is being discussed. You don't award yourself a grant. So here we have a field in which the Darwinian process of variations, organized variations, because they're organized, but they're organized in some kind of randomized way or unpoliticized way, depoliticized way, do take place. And then there is a kind of orderly competition out of which one can see some kind of fitness landscapes being created in which disciplines are born and die and, and all the rest of it. So I think in that area, it seems to me to be, in an odd way, you know, rather surprisingly kind of apt. <laughs> I think one has to be careful in what way variation has to be random. And um, I think you got that slightly confused earlier in your talk. Um, variation has to be random at the level of... Um, of the population where you introduce it. So if you have different companies, 
and you talked about um, maybe certain forces controlling uh, material resources, you have to consider these forces competing with each other rather than these forces influencing the level at different units of selection. Well, I, I, I'm going to question the premise. I mean, I, there's nothing in Darwin which says that variation has to be random. It may be in some context, but you won't find the word random in the origin of species. Uh, I, I think this, hitching Darwinism to randomness is, is a mistake. I, I think there's some cases in which it ra the randomness, randomness description is appropriate, but it's, it may not be appropriate in a business context. I, I think that in it, uh, I, I share Mike's uh, misgivings about the notion of uh, innovation being uh, random, but I, I don't think that challenges Darwinism at all. But the trouble is that randomness itself, of course, is a controversial topic, and it's controversial uh, um, even in, in terms of arguments over how uh, uh, a very long, uh, in a very long series of digits, how you identify authentic randomness yeah. uh, uh, from any disciplines. Is there an algorithm shorter than, than the sequence? Um, it seems to me in practice, this is my answer to Mike, I mean, the, the only text on the Ruth was saying, do we have, can we explain better than people have explained before by bringing these ideas um, to bear? And nothing wrong if it's an analogy or a metaphor, if it helps. Um, information is not a metaphor. I mean, I, I, I think that, that we'd be quite explicit about saying that uh, um, there's nothing for which the idea of information is standing in its stead. It's as much or as little as a metaphor at any level of selection. But let's just take, while we were talking, I was thinking this one. Obviously, nobody thinks, if you are one of the contributors to the enormous uh, uh, literature and Marx's favorite how do we explain the Industrial Revolution, what do we mean by it, and, and where it happened? Well, uh, uh, Darwinian theory uh, um, doesn't tell you what you need to know, which is about the importance of where coal was located near certain demographic conversations of labor and so forth. In one sense, um, if, you, if you want to know uh, what afterwards explains why certain techniques, routines, labor relations, which started in Northwest Europe, spread elsewhere and succeeded where they did, you don't care that economic historians haven't come up you know, with the right. You don't care if the fact that somebody says, well, if the coal had been located in a different place, the whole course of, of economic history would have been different. You take that as given, and you then say, why does, for example, free wage labor penetrate, literally, certain regions of economies of the world uh, where it is resisted for cultural and social reasons in others? Now, I think the best answers to those sort of questions are likely to be the ones which start by asking the kind of questions which Ruth and people like her are asking in a way, if I can, if I'm allowed to say, it's easier. <laughs> you, know, you, you can produce these these really convincing uh, results, uh, um, but because the the evidence you have and the techniques you have for, for dealing with it are way ahead uh, um, of what uh, people Jeff might not not accept that. Um, but it, it, it gets a lot more difficult um, as you deal with enormous complex societies and, te and technologies. Um, but, but I think. You're, you're absolutely right that all I can ask is for people to say, in what sense random, and so what, and let's see whether your explanation is better than its competitor. Yeah. Um, a question about the limits of applying selection arguments to cultural evolution as an explanation. My understanding of biology is that in order to be able to say 
that a change has taken place influenced by selection is that you have a context of competition for limited resources. So how much, in how many cases do you think it is a problem to find competition for limited resources as the context of changing culture? For example, there seems to be, I mean, I'm a biologist, I don't know anything about people. There seems to be a change in which the younger generation seems to think that, for example, being skinny is cool, or ideas of fashion. Now, with fashion, if you have limited money at your disposal, then you can say, oh, well, if certain brands do well, you have a context of competition for limited resources, perhaps. But how, how, how does it work, for example, to explain the rise of xenophobia, or perhaps just that thin is cool? What is the context here if selection could be a factor? What is the competition? What are the resources that are limited so that selection is actually contributing to differences? Well, when you talk about it, and it's a whole other subject, I have uh, quite a lot of attention being, being given to it, not least by people like, like Boyd Newsom. Uh, what broadly goes under the heading of, of fashion, it's, a, it's almost a commonplace. Um, the speed with which uh, an innovation in a style of dress or something like that can, you know, can take over uh, a population uh, which was, was previously uh, uh, indifferent to it. Now, I think this actually ties back to the point might be good, because if you say, if you look at it in a society like ours, and if you just say, let's talk to the evolutionary uh, uh, um, psychologists, uh, and, and they'll say, well, there's a natural disposition uh, um, for short skirts or bright red colors, or, and there may be gender differences, which, and they may well be right, um, but you don't need a degree in anything uh, uh, to know that the, the culture in some form, imitation and learning is crucially important. Uh, and some people would say, and you don't need Boyd and Richardson to say, that the prestige effect, if you like, but it, it is a huge part of the explanation of why suddenly you know, every kid on the block is, is wearing a baseball cap. Um, because that's the, the some prestigious role model. And then not only uh, do they start imitating the role model, but, but uh, frequency dependence, which can be modeled mathematically with, with, with great precision and lots of unfamiliar S-shaped curve, you could actually predict you know, how this is going to spread. But then we say, well, hang on, hang on, we are in a capitalist society, consumer-driven, and this market is being manipulated. Uh, uh, now, these people aren't good guys or bad guys in, 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 in Darwinism, and that, that, that's really not the point. The point is they do have the power to influence the market, and you will not understand why the kids on the block are wearing what they wear, um, if you then add to your evolutionary psychological insights and your dual inheritance theory by Richardson models, um, the fact that the market is being manipulated by people who are competing for a share of the market, and then maybe you say, have we got an evolutionary economist in the house uh, who can help us? But you are, of course, you know, working at, I would say, all three levels of the evolutionary process. Jeff, uh, um, what do you feel about the fashion market? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, you have to bring in um, preference formation and the inflation into the stories. I mean, so there'll be competition between firms, yeah. and there'll be scarcity because uh, uh, scarcity of resources, the raw materials they use it, and, and uh, they'll be competing for market share. Well, that seems straightforward. But for example, the preference for skinniness per se. Yeah. You can but, definitely well, see changes in time. Yeah. Yeah, I think back to Ruth for that question. Well, well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, you know, you could, um, I, 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 don't, I don't know the answer, but I mean, you, 
you, super skinniness you could imagine. Um, you know, there's a lot of... Um, if you work in the fashion business so that you're on the print media or on television, it actually helps to be very, very thin. It looks better on the cover of magazines, and those women that can do that are now multimillionaires, and therefore you can imagine prestige uh, effects could start to um, come in there. Um, but, but just going back again, I, I don't know whether this is the answer, but if you're an evolutionary biologist, I think the area of evolutionary theory that is quite that is potentially quite helpful in understanding this is not so much nat- straight natural selection as sexual selection and we know from biology that sexual selection can pick on something pretty arbitrary and send it to ridiculous uh, lengths so whether you're a bird with a bright blue tail or with two little uh, feathers coming out like this or a crest on your head or whatever um, we don't think those are useful traits in any way but we, we now have models of evolutionary processes that explain why they've gone to great uh, lengths and also why, um, you know, it doesn't make any sense to hang upside, if you're a lyrebird, to hang upside down, on the face of it, to hang upside down from a branch and wave your blue feathers around all day and do nothing else and not contribute to the rearing of your offspring in any way. But we have evolutionary models that can explain that and do explain that that's actually the most important thing you can do because the birds that do that best get the most offspring. And um, in it seems straightforward enough because yeah. you link that directly to uh, reproductive success. But some of the cultural things, I mean, but the I think link of certain things to actually perhaps reproductive success. But I mean, I, some of the cultural evolution models is that you, that, that you don't necessarily have to link it straight to reproductive success so long as you reprodu- link it to the success of spreading the idea. So um, if, you, if the generation time of an idea... I mean, cultural selection is so much faster than natural selection because the generation time is as long as it takes you to persuade somebody else that it's a good idea. So you could get things that would ha- would take uh, many, many generations to evolve in a biological evolution could be uh, evolving very fast. So I think the sort of runaway processes that occur in sexual selection speed it up could be a good model, actually, for and fashion. And the model says there is competition between, is it genes or memes, if we can you use that word, and there are plenty of, of anthropological examples in the literature of, of the, the runaway process of which the peacock's tail is a classic. It goes back to 1948 of, 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 uh, on, on the Pacific Island. They, they competed in growing larger and larger yams beyond the point that you're actually getting a nutritional payoff because the, the, the competition in, in prestige, and this, this is a beauty, and Boydrus and my others have cited it. Uh, um, ever since, to, to, this is we we can see what we need to understand of, of how these of how these interact, and it, it's uh, it's a very nice example of that because you can see exactly what's going on, and it's biologically uh, maladaptive because of culture. Uh, yes, so I, I, somebody had a yes, and I, I hope that this might contribute to this, and I'd like to confess straight away that I'm a biologist too. Um, it seems to me that what's missing from our discussion so far uh, is the nature of what is the parallel between fitness in a biological sense and fitness in a social or economic or uh, other uh, sense. And what we've been assuming uh, in our discussion so far is the only thing that matters is the propagation of an idea itself. 
But actually, the big lesson from the study of evolution in the second half of the 20th century was due to Bill Hamilton. And he taught us that actually what matters is inclusive fitness. That is to say, that you have to look beyond the propagation of the organism that bears the gene itself, because it could be uh, that relatives of the organism that bore the gene would be the ones to benefit. And it seems to me that it's very important to consider the possibility that one idea might actually benefit the spread of another idea. And I haven't heard anybody talking about that. That, I think, would be accepted by people uh, um, working in the same way. Where uh, we, we, we've touched on it, and, and you know, Ian could have invited a self-styled mimeticist you know, to sit on, but I suspect all of us would, would, would have disagreed uh, um, with, with, with a hardline um, uh, uh, self-styled mimeticist in different ways to judge, to judge by what we've said. Um, and, and I certainly uh, would, because uh, what they say, their answer to your question, is they go back, they go back to Richard Dawkins, uh, and they say that the parallels of a selfish gene, which is, is only uh, interested in itself and embraces kid selection, and uh, um, Dawkins would, wouldn't uh, disagree with you about the importance of, of, of Hamilton's. Uh, indeed, there are some say that, that uh, Hamilton was the inspiration for Dawkins' popularization of the selfish gene idea. Uh, the difficulty with, with the selfish meme idea is that the hardline mimeticists say that memes, we don't know quite what they are, but they, are, they exist in our heads. Brain science will one day track them down. Uh, and they would say that for Darwinian uh, models to work, uh, the inheritance must be particular, like it is with the, with, with the gene. Whereas uh, I think that the really interesting thing about, about uh, um, the, the, the meme idea is you say, that the kind of information which affects behavior of the phenotype, which is transmitted by mutation and learning, can, can be blended on transmission in a way that genetic information can't, precisely. And then the interesting question is, when you're studying, when you're out in the field studying the transmission, the, the cultural inheritance, and, and, and another area of work where Ruth is an expert, and I'm a complete, uh, uh, I, I was reading Stephen Shannon's book, Coming Down on the Train, about genius means of human history. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, and and uh, look, looking at that trees of descent of uh, cultural artifacts or bride work or everything. Now, in the course of this, the, the, the ever-branching tree of, of classic Darwinian natural selection has to allow for the fact that ideas can cross over and blend and then become new cultural traditions. Something different does go on, it seems to me, in the process um, of, of cultural uh, inheritance. And, and uh, I agree that that's what you're saying. Well, the gene-meme analogy must not be pressed to yes, close I, I, because I it is different. Yes, I, I wasn't quite talking about the, the blending of ideas, but rather the, the fact that the inheritance of ideas might go in yes. associated gangs let me give you a simple example. Yeah. Uh, there's a well-known association between smoking and other kinds of risky behavior. Yeah. And there need be no direct connection between smoking and those other kinds of risky behavior, but yet they go together. But this is a classic. We want to know why do they go yes. together. Yes. Uh, and and, and the idea is useful if you say, uh, um, I mean, let's take linguistics where Darwinian models are now hugely successful. And some people will say, 
the unit of selection is the phoneme. And other people say, let's look at the whole language, or let's look at the whole grammar as the unit of selection. But then the answer is, see what you can do with it. Does it explain, given the, the, the enormous amount of, of, of data that we, we now have, the great Cavalli's also and, and, and the genetic map as well. So there's a whole area, and again, which I, I have no uh, expertise, which, which seems to me that, that to bring out precisely this, the danger of, uh, I'm not worried that we don't know what means are. They are whatever are the items or packages or bundles of information which are, in fact, out there being selected. They are varying, they are which are being, being subject to these evolutions. And you want to understand how this works. And the best way to understand how it works is in the kind of way that Ruth, in particular, with some, some hard examples, uh, has been talking about. But Jeff wants to say. Yeah, I mean, the question about fitness was my question. Yes, it was. I mean, I think the best article I'd come across was a survey article on the fitness concept is by De Jong, or De Jong. And, and he goes through. First of all, demonstrates a very ambiguous concept using different ways. And by the way, Darwin didn't invent the term survival of the fittest, that's more Spencerian. Um, and the conclusion Dion comes, is, comes to is in fact that fitness is an outcome, not a cause. In other words, it's a description of a result of an evolutionary process. And, and um, one of the best definitions he comes up with is it's the growth rate of a genotype. Okay, so, if we wanted to measure the fitness in the, in the social context, we would have to identify a phenotype. Now, uh, I'm the big one, the genotype, um, which may be a mean, or maybe something else. I, I would say something else. I don't like the mean terminology. But then you see what the growth rate is. And, and that would be the measure of fitness in that context. So, um, looking at phones, for example, you see certain dispositions toward behaviors. And you see the, the, the growth through time of those and say, well, that's the fitness of the particular type that's going down. It's um, in relative environment, it shows a, uh, a de declining fitness rate. So I think you can generalize across both those domains. You can, you can, you can use the fitness concept for those consequences. I mean, we know the traps here, the alleged possible tautology and, and so on. But um, people who have examined this, who conclude it's not tautological, there's actually some explanatory power involved. There's, uh, testable predictions are, can be generated and so, so forth. Yes. Stephen Pinker is very good on this, yeah. for saying, yes. for, for, for knocking down the idea that the argument is so good. I, I just want to see if I can come in on this. You mentioned the question of the movement from the biological to the social sphere, which is the question of what counts as, as it were, success. There is a kind of metric in the biological sphere, which is roughly biological re reproduction mm -hmm. and the capture of an environmental niche. Is there an analogue to this metric in the social sphere? Yeah. It's a huge, after all, there is, there is obviously a very long gap between reproductive success and social success. In some of the most successful societies we know, in terms of income and power, have the fewest children and can barely reproduce themselves at all. So plainly that is no longer what they're about, whatever else they're about. Now, when you, find, when you can create a bit of society where there is some kind of common metric, and maybe the market economy of competing corporations would be such an example, and as I said, I think science is such an example. Well, there you do have a criterion of success. These theories did better than those theories, or these kinds of technologies did better than those kinds of technologies. But how about when you come to compare the business sphere and the, and the fashion sphere and the scientific sphere as different spheres of value? People seem to be actually going in different directions and doing different kinds of things, and there seems to be no commensurability in what their goals are. So how can you measure their relative success if they themselves measure their relative success in quite different ways. And I think this does raise a whole problem about the, the translation of a, of, a, of a 
framework of ideas, whether a rather largely commensurable outcomes to a sphere of ideas, what an earlier question that talked about as a purposeful mode of life, where there are many incommensurable goals and ideas. Now, just one further point, I mean, Gary has tried to do this, I mean, you know, enormously impressively, by comparing social formations, which of them do well, and how do they, how do they coexist? And, you know, I can, that, you know, plainly that has a huge, huge force, although the problem for me with that is not that it's not immensely interesting, but that I don't know that it does that differently from what the sociologists which make it up, as it were, are already trying to do. Well, but, but uh, um, just before, because yeah. uh, there's somebody who hasn't yet. Sorry. It was just, uh, in fact, the point's been made. I, I'm not sure that I would agree that growth is a measure of success. Um, surely survival in Darwinianism is really a measure of success. And I think one of the problems is this, what do you mean by fittest? And I, I think that... Success and fitness are not the same thing. They're different ideas. I mean, uh, some things can be very unsuccessful, like fit. I mean, um, fitness is a growth rate of a genotype. Genotype can be all sorts yeah. of things. Er, ergo, a mimetite, ergo, I would say, of social practice. And I, I gave you the, the example of wage labor, you see, and the, the measure. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter uh, from this point of view, uh, the fact that it, 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 it's, it, there may be all sorts of different value systems in it, you know, that you need to understand what's going on uh, uh, in the heads of, of capitalists and proletarians, to use the old fashioned language, uh, um, in, in different parts of the world at the different stages. Um, of economic development, but I, I don't think, I don't want to sound too, too dogmatic, but there are plenty of definitional worry. I mean, we, could, we could all you know, could confess the, the conceptual uncertainties that, that there are and the controversies in, in our separate bits of it. This, this one, I have to say, worries me less than somebody else, but you wanted to come back. I just want to comment on the point of commensurability. Yeah. Um, it's just a simple matter of fact mm -hmm. that you don't compare fitness across populations that fitness is a measure designed to compare the success or the relative growth rate of within a population. Right. So your aim cannot be in a Darwinian framework to do that across different populations or species or whatever population, you have, whatever level of selection you take. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Uh, uh, can I say I think a possible metric of success in social groups might be social status, which does link to reproductive success. Question I, I I really wanted to know. I'm I'm not clear how you distinguish social group selection from group selection. And I, I'm oh. grateful if you clarify that. It's puzzled me for a long time. Can I just ask? There is a, a, an answer to cultural, uh, literal cultural group selection. Well, uh, by, by social, do you mean the same as uh, But group group selection. The implication is that it's been rejected for a long time. I think I I wonder whether it has been. But, but Boyd Richardson uh, and so forth, they argue that social group selection is somehow different. Yeah. And I don't understand, I've never understood, for my part, how uh, group selection at the level of genes is impossible, but social group selection having an impact on genes is having no impact. Well, we're one minute over finishing time. Ruth, I think, probably give you the best answer. Well, my understanding, um, I, I, I tried to explain it quickly um, in the answer, actually, to the first question, which is that group selection doesn't work because the, the differences between groups breaks down as soon as you have even tiny levels of migration between groups. Whereas um, if you're looking at cultural variants... 
if you have some mechanism within those groups to make people conform to that culture, then you can sort of protect yourself a little bit from that dilution effect. So when migrants come in, they have to conform to your cultural system. And so, you know, various words have been used like conformist bias or altruistic punishment is a big one at the moment. And when you've got those mechanisms in place, so long as you don't have mass migration between groups, small levels of migration between groups, the the distinctness of groups can be upheld. And therefore, competition between groups... Um, becomes, I mean, I, I, I mean, group selection could happen in theory, but it, most people just don't think it does. Maybe it does in social insects or something like that. But if, if yeah. Cultural group selection is there actually happening. Would not the volume effect put that under genes at the same time, which is effective group selection? Yeah, I think that's what the gene culture coevolution people are are saying to There's some quite extent. a rigorous formulation of this in terms of the price equation. Yeah. It's an article by Henry in yeah. journal, the Journal of the Economic Behaviour and Organisation in 2003 or 2004. And, and it, it all depends in both contexts, genes yeah. and culture, yeah. on whether variation within groups is offset by variation between yeah. groups. The group yeah. will work, you need more variation between groups than you do have within groups. If you preserve that, for the mechanisms of the world. But can I just uh, give one Hamilton yeah. said it's not impossible, it's very unlikely. Yeah. And you want to convince me, you've got to show me the model. It can work. Yeah. Examples of chickens, we yeah. group select them and so on. It can work even in the genetic domain. But we know there's restrict, restrictive conditions. But can I just but say? It can work in both. Yeah. Just very quickly, just, to, it, just to illustrate yeah. that, I mean, Cavalli Swartzer made the point that, say, you, you could have a cultural group called the Basques who have their language, they have this cultural identity. I'm saying the Basques, they could be any group. And just a few, um, a bit of interbreeding with surrounding populations every year for 400 years or whatever would make them genetically indistinguishable from the surrounding populations over time. But because the language and culture is being maintained through different processes, it can still be there. So a lot of these groups that argue they have their own group, they have their identity, they may have their cultural and linguistic boundaries, but the genetic boundaries are really leaky, which is why genetic group selection doesn't work, but cultural group selection... Might. Yes, yes, we should, we should. Whereas yeah, cultural so groups actually might work. That's why uh, the difference. I'm, I'm very Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Leading figures from the social sciences will discuss whether the theory of natural selection has anything to offer present-day studies of culture and society. The seminar is organised by the University of Bath and the Academy of Learned Societies for the Social Sciences as part of the ESRC Festival of Social Science.